Well, as Melissa indicated, I did celebrate my 56th birthday this last Tuesday. But, you know, in many ways, it was a normal everyday life uh, day in the, in the life of a, a church planning pastor. I got up, grabbed my cup of coffee, went to my room, read my one-year Bible. I prayed, uh, journaled. Then I ate breakfast, got ready for work. Met Tony for coffee, worked on the sermon a little bit in the morning, met Greg for lunch, worked on the sermon a little bit in the afternoon, came home, ate dinner, met with another couple who are pressing into issues in their marriage. Uh, then I drove to Morton and had coffee with Lee. Probably should stop drinking so much coffee. <laughs> I, re- I received a few birthday cards from my wife, my children, my parents, my mother-in-law, and Busey Bank. I received lots of text messages and over 170 birthday wishes on Facebook. Now, this kind of news is rather troublesome to the greeting card companies like Hallmark and American Greetings, whose sales, even though they hold 82% of the market share, have plummeted dramatically in the last decade due to social media, text messaging, and uh, email greetings that have now become a socially acceptable manner of communicating on special occasions. And so sadly, in, in my worldview, the sending of handwritten postcards and greeting cards is in a tragic decline, a death spiral. I love postcards. Uh, they're colorful, they're artistic, they are briefly informative, just a highlight, not a travelogue, and they connect us with a, a larger story, the sender, kind of, you know, reminding us of the bigger story. It's in that spirit that today we're continuing our sermon series titled Old Testament Postcards. Each week we are looking at a different real-life story of a colorful but otherwise ordinary Old Testament character uh, who relates to an extraordinary God. We've suggested that perhaps we could even subtitle this sermon series, Ordinary People, Extraordinary God. Uh, it's just a postcard, not the whole story. And our goals are twofold. First, to be informed and encouraged. Hopefully, we're building a bridge from the world of the Bible into our lives today, particularly enabling us to see where they fit in, in the bigger picture. Secondly, we want to be challenged and changed. That is, uh, we don't want to stay the same. We want to apply a few of the life lessons from their biographies to our lives today. And this morning, we're going to be looking at a postcard from Joseph, and we're going to see uh, that God can be trusted. So let's pray together. Lord, we bow our heads and hearts today at the start of a brand new week to say thank you. Thank you, Father, for life and breath and soundness of mind, health of body, Thank you for life. Thank you for Jesus, his death and resurrection. Thank you for the real life you provide when we turn from sin and selfishness and turn to you. And now, Lord, we pray that your kingdom would come, not just in this auditorium, but right next door in Vineyard Kids and in the nursery, Lord, in this whole campus, that that you would uh, touch us, encourage us, heal us, convict us in all the ways you know we so desperately need in your name. Amen. Joseph was one of the 12 sons of Jacob, uh, who was the grandson of Abraham. The lessons from his life story that are the centerpiece of Genesis chapters 37 to 50. The lessons are many, but this morning we want to focus on one lesson on the postcard. Now, the storyline of the Bible is about a king and his kingdom, uh, Bill Jackson, who is a vineyard scholar, teacher, and a friend of mine, states it well in his book, The Eden Project. 
He says, the storyline of the entire Bible can be summarized like this. The establishment of God's kingdom by God's Savior for God's glory. And so the important lesson in the subplot of the life of Joseph is this, that God the King can be trusted. We'll see this lesson applied three different ways this morning. Firstly, that God can be trusted with our past family history. If you're there in Genesis chapter 37, we begin reading in verses 2 to 4. This is the account of Jacob and his family. When Joseph was 17 years old, he often tended his father's flocks. He worked for his half-brothers, the sons of, fa- of his father's wives, Bilhah and Zilpah. And Joseph reported to his father some of the bad things that his brothers were doing. Jacob loved Joseph more than any of his other children because Joseph had been born to him in his old age. So one day, Jacob had a special gift made for Joseph, a beautiful robe. But his brothers hated Joseph because of their father who loved him more than the rest of them. They couldn't say a kind word to him. The entire uh, story of, of Jacob or Joseph's life is backdropped by family feud. Jacob had two wives two concubines or maidservants, and 12 sons. His wife Leah had, uh, was mother to Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun. Leah's maid, Zilpah, had sons Gad and Asher. His wife Rachel was mother to Joseph and his younger brother Benjamin. And Rachel's maid, Billah, was uh, mother to Dan and Naphtali. Joseph's mother, Rachel, and his stepmother, Leah, were very jealous and bitter against one another over their respective children. And in the soup of this large and complicated blended family, no doubt charges of favoritism and partiality and leniency and the resulting mistreatment were rampant. And it was exacerbated because Jacob uh, had a an obvious favorite in his son, Joseph, born in his old age. He obviously had not learned the lesson from his upbringing because Jacob's uh, Joseph's father, Jacob, had trouble with his brother Esau. And that was because his parents had favorites. His father, Isaac, preferred Esau and his mother, Rebecca, preferred him, Jacob. So the sins of the parents show up in the kids is the lesson. At the same time, Jacob's favoritism towards Joseph could be understandable. You know, Joseph united the best attributes of his lineage. His grandfather, Abraham, he was strong and prudent like him. He was gentle and patient like his grandfather, uh, Isaac, his great-grandfather, Abraham, now his, his grandfather, Isaac. He was affectionate like his father, Jacob. He was handsome and well-built uh, like his mother and, and uh, her mother. In many ways, he would have been the family hero. And there probably wasn't any one single thing that Joseph did to turn his ten brothers against him. It wasn't necessarily the bad report of verse 2 that we just discovered. And very often this is how it is in families and marriages, isn't it? Uh, It's not just one thing. It's mostly small things that in themselves can seem at the moment too insignificant to mention. But the greatness lies in their accumulation. And then you know how it works. You know the scenario. It's some small gesture, a simple request, or a comment, and it opens a floodgate of response. It's like the volcano erupts. You're familiar to this scenario. I remember, well, just a few years ago, around our kitchen table, it was, honey, could you just please pass the ketchup? 
And the volcano erupted. I'm thinking, where did that come from? Because she was hearing me say that she wasn't a good housekeeper because she ran out of ketchup, which wasn't it. All I just wanted was the ketchup. I wasn't saying anything about how she kept the house or managed the home or bought the groceries or anything. And you're all shaking your heads and nodding and agreeing because you know exactly the scenario. It's just one little comment or one little action and boom, the volcano erupts. You think, where did that come from? Well, in Joseph's case, it was the beautiful tunic, not just a coat, but a full length robe that was a customarily worn by nobility. This tunic probably signaled to Joseph's brothers that Jacob had now decided to bestow the birthright on him. After all, Jacob probably reasoned. Uh, the sons of Leah have proven themselves to be unfit heirs. Simeon and Levi, by their murderous cruelty at the city of Shechem, you can read that story in Genesis 34, where they killed every male in revenge for their sister Dinah's rape. Uh, Reuben had slept with the father's concubine, Genesis 35. They didn't count. Jacob was thinking, well, certainly the kids of the maid don't merit the birthright. And so what could be more natural than to bestow this privilege on the firstborn son of Rachel, whom he had intended to make his first wife anyway, even though the trickery of his father-in-law Laban prevented that. The tunic was the last straw they'd had it. And as a result, his brothers hated him. Well, Joseph's family is a lot like many of ours, isn't it? Truth be told, our families are complicated constellations created by divorce, remarriage, sibling rivalry between stepbrothers and sisters, half-brothers and sisters, blood brothers and sisters, favoritism, bitterness, jealousy, unforgiveness, sexual brokenness, sexual and verbal abuse, uh, emotional intolerance, and lots of other things all thrown in the mix much of it over which you, growing up, had little or no control. What's interesting is that the the Bible offers little commentary, does it? It just says, here's the way it is. It didn't say, you know, poor Jacob, oh, poor little Joey. No, it just says, here's the way it is. And neither is there any record of God having rebuked uh, Jacob for the way things unfolded in his family or for rebuking Isaac for not training his kids any better than he did. It simply records the way things were. I love that about the Bible. Nothing sanitized and photoshopped in there. But real life in God's real kingdom means there's real trouble in our family and in our history. In many ways, all of our families are dysfunctional. You don't want to know why? Because that's the only kind there are because they're made up of people who are broken and fallen. Now, it's this complicated mess of, of a family situation is the soil out of which Joseph's story emerges. It's the backdrop of the lineage of the coming Savior. God used this family feud to accomplish his bigger purposes. Now, was God responsible Certainly not. There was lots of unhealthy and disobedient choices and inability or unwillingness to press in and do the right things or to take responsibility. But nevertheless, God used this messed up family constellation to move the larger storyline of his kingdom coming. He he used it to move it forward. And so the note here, friends, is that God can be trusted with your family history Two. 
no matter how messed up, no matter how complicated, no matter how broken, no matter how sinful and painful to to this very day. I've got a brother-in-law who no longer wishes to speak to me. He and his two younger brothers haven't spoken to each other for years. Complicated messes in our own family and in yours as well. The good thing to know is that we are not disqualified from being a vital part of God's kingdom because of our past and our family constellation. Thank God for that. Now, don't try to go figuring out why God put you in the family situation he did or why your parents were the way they were or why your marriage blew up or why uh, your parents you know, did or didn't do the job they did in raising you and providing for you an environment of growth. Don't try to analyze all that stuff. Why you couldn't get along with your siblings or your parents or your children or why it still is that way today. Why your family is so darned dysfunctional and broken. You will likely never know why, but you can trust God that it's a part of his plan for your life. I think Joseph's life suggests that we might pray something like this. God, I don't understand it, but I embrace my broken family history as part of your bigger plan for my life. I have no control over where I came from or what happened, nor am I minimizing the complications and the difficulties, uh, the pain and the effects that continue to this very day, Lord. Nevertheless, I choose to trust you. I trust you. I trust you for where I am going and the person that I'm going to grow to become. I trust you that I can be a vital part as your kingdom moves forward. Second lesson. God can be trusted to fulfill his callings on our life. Story of Joseph continues in 37. We'll pick up in verse 5. One night, Joseph had a dream. And when he told his brothers about it, they hated him more than ever. Listen to this dream, he said. We were out in the field tying up bundles of grain. Suddenly, my bundle stood up and your bundles all gathered around and bowed low before mine. His brothers responded, so you think you'll be our king, do you? You actually think you'll reign over us? And they hated him all the more because of his dreams and the way he talked about them. Soon Joseph had another dream. And again, he told his brothers about it. Listen, I've had another dream, he said. The sun, the moon, and 11 stars bowed low before me. This time he told his dream to his father as well as his brothers. But his father scolded him. What kind of dream is that, he asked. Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow to the ground before you? But while his brothers were jealous of Joseph, his father wondered what the dreams meant. Now, each one of us who identifies as a follower of Jesus has what I call a general calling on our lives. That is, we are to be full-time disciples in the three spheres where God has placed us. You've heard me uh, challenge you in this arena before, uh, where we work, where we live, and the people with whom we do life. In our thoughts, in our words, in our actions, we're to live full-time for Jesus 24-7, 365. That is the call of God on all of us who would say we're his disciple. And in many ways, all we could ever do for God anywhere else we can do right now in those three spheres. What is that, you say? Well, you can deny yourselves, take up the cross, and follow Jesus. You can take off the old man and put on the new. You can read your Bible, pray, fast, give generously, serve others in love. Ask people, can I pray for you right now? You can be a loving spouse, train your children, 
uh, to love and obey God, serve in a capacity in the local church, be a blessing through outreach to your community, honor God in your uh, body. You can be thankful. These things make up our general call. You need no special insight or revelation from God to be a a full-time disciple right where you are. But each follower of Christ also has a unique destiny that is a special calling that only you can fulfill. Jesus, in praying to the Father in John 17, 4, prays this prayer. Father, I brought you uh, here. I, I brought glory to you here on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. You see, each of us, like Jesus, has a special work that we are to do. And we bring the Father glory when we complete it and fill it up. Now, because God is a communicating God, he desires to reveal this calling, this special calling, this unique work, this destiny in each of our lives in different ways. It might be through uh, the Word of God speaking to us. It might be through prayer, the inward witness and voice of the Holy Spirit. It might be through the input and counsel of those that we love and trust. It might be through circumstances. It might be through the proclaimed word in in a church service or in, in a small group. Sometimes God uses supernatural means like prophecy or words of wisdom and words of knowledge or speaking in tongues and the companion gift of interpretation as a way of revealing his unique calling. And he also uses dreams as a legitimate form of supernatural direction. In this text, we saw that Joseph received two supernatural dreams. Now, we know today that the dreams were prophetic, that God was revealing Joseph's future. But at the time, there was no way of knowing or judging whether those things were from God or not. You know, in the minds of his family, uh, what was keeping them from just being the product of a of a favored, proud, and coddled youngster in the family? You know, the baby's always the favorite, right? There's always an element of mystery in your dreams. One night we can have weird, dark, carnal, even violent or tragic dreams, and then the next night we're getting dreams from God. Mystery. I might suggest just a little caution in labeling a dream as directly from God. If you have one that you think is, here, here's just a couple of tips. First, write them down because they easily slip away. You forget them. That's kind of the way they're made. So write them down in a journal or in a notebook. Secondly, pray for an interpretation. It's my conviction that in most cases, if you're a believer, a Christ follower, over time, you will come to understand the significance of your dream without the need of someone else telling you. Unbelievers, on the other hand, Pharaoh, Nebuchadnezzar, others in the Bible, the butler and the baker in this story, often need help, and God will use you to give others outside the kingdom an interpretation as a way of revealing God's love and power to them. And then just be slow to share your dreams with others, especially your family, because they will often not understand. Now, as I kind of look around the the, the audience and mix here this morning, I, I see that God's unique destiny or special calling may be for you to be a teacher or maybe an architect or an engineer, uh, a doctor or a dietitian, uh, an, an IT worker, a graphic designer, a uh, counselor, to work in, in the business trade, 
to be a, a man or a woman of the trades, to work in retail or food service. Some of you are in sales. Some of you are stay-at-home moms and dads. It might be God's call to be a, a church planter or a missionary or to work with a not-for-profit. At any rate, the list could go on. Uh, and, and, and his special calling may shift or change or emerge differently in, in the seasons of your life. But as you lean into your present understanding of God's unique call, your destiny, uh, the issue is we just then have to trust him to bring it to pass. That's the message of Joseph's life. Even though, like Joseph, that calling can seem impossible. The insight God gave Joseph, real as it, we know later it was, seemed impossible for, for him to, it to come to pass. But God can be trusted to work it out. He'll do the right thing in the right way at the right time for the right reason. You see, it took about 23 years for Joseph's dreams, his special calling, to be fully fulfilled, to reach their fullness. And all the while, he continued to trust God. It may take your entire lifetime for you to complete the work that God has for you to do. And all that time, you have to lean into trusting God. When God first began to speak to Tina and I, back in 2008, about leaving our pastoral work in Champaign and moving here to plant a vineyard, we could not imagine how that calling could be possible. But we just had to trust him a day at a time. And, well, look, here we are with all of you. You see, so much of living out our destiny, our special calling in the kingdom is this, left foot, right foot. Left foot, right foot, day in, day out, doing what God gives you to do, eating what's on your plate, hearing and obeying, hearing and obeying. All the while, trusting that Jesus is going to lead you and guide you and direct you and provide so that your destiny can be fulfilled. Joseph trusted God because God can be trusted to fulfill his callings on our lives. Thirdly, God can be trusted when things unfold differently than we imagine. The abridged postcard version of the rest of the story is this. Joseph visited his brothers, their flocks in Hebron. As he arrived, the jealous brothers plotted to kill him. Reuben, the oldest and wisest, shrank back from the idea out of consideration for his parents, especially Joseph, his father. And so instead, they threw Joseph into a cistern to die. Judah then suggested that they sell him to a group of Midianite merchants, and so Joseph ended up on the Egyptian slave market where he was purchased by the captain of Pharaoh's guard, Potiphar. And I love the Holy Spirit's inspired reflection in Genesis 39 at this point in the story. The Lord was with Joseph, and so he succeeded in everything he did as he served in the home of his Egyptian master. From the day Joseph was put in charge of his master's household and property, the Lord began to bless Potiphar's household for Joseph's sake. All his household affairs ran smoothly, and his crops and his livestock flourished. Friends, no matter how your life story, your general and special callings unfold, I have a deep conviction that we can experience this kind of kingdom favor wherever you're at in the unfolding of your life story. No matter how off track you might feel you are, no matter where, you, how far from that ultimate dream that God's given you, 
you can experience the favor of God in the same way Joseph did in the unfolding of your life story. He advanced to the head of Potiphar's house until Potiphar's wife made an advance against him. He ended up in prison uh, with the butler and the baker through trumped up and false charges. Each of them had a dream. Joseph correctly interpreted the dreams, and both of them promptly forgot about him. Then Pharaoh had a dream, but the butler remembered Joseph, who then interpreted Pharaoh's dream correctly, and subsequently that day was promoted to be the prime minister of the most powerful nation in all of the world by age of 30. And so, friends, God can take you from the prison to the pinnacle in 24 hours if it's time. As the, as the book of Psalms in the 75th chapter says, God decides who will rise and who will fall. And at the right moment, at the right time, God can speak, and you, you're delivered from being in the prison to the pinnacle of the most powerful nation in all of the world, and some say in human history. Well, a famine in the land of Canaan drove the house of Jacob to Egypt for food, where Joseph was reunited with his family in a very poignant and touching scene, exactly as he dreamt two decades ago. And then in the safe cocoon of the richest and most powerful nation and kingdom in all the earth, the Hebrews, the family, uh, began to form a nation out of which Jesus the Savior would come some thousands of years later. The establishment of God's kingdom by God's Savior for God's glory. And it was right there that it began to happen. Now, on the surface, as you read the balance of Joseph's story, it can seem, can't it, that everything's kind of just unfolding naturally. You know, that it's just life unfolding in its normal, complicated, messy, painful, disappointing manner. But behind the veil, you see an unseen higher hand, the hand of God the King that is leading and guiding and directing and controlling the affairs of men and families and nations and the nature and the weather. All things are under God's sovereign direction. And Joseph could see a bigger picture the whole time. When things unfolded differently than he imagined, he could see the higher hand of God. Listen, as the, as the story un, uh, unfolds, and, and Joseph is, up, is now preparing to reveal himself to his brothers uh, in Genesis 45. Joseph could stand it no longer. There were many people in the room, and he said to his attendants, Out, all of you. So he was alone with his brothers when he told them who he was. He broke down and wept. He wept so loudly that the Egyptians could hear him, and the word of it quickly carried to Pharaoh's palace. I'm Joseph, he said to his brothers. Is my father still alive? But his brothers were speechless. They were stunned to realize that Joseph was standing there in front of them. Please, come closer, he said to them. So they came closer, and he said again, I'm Joseph, your brother, who you sold into slavery in Egypt. But don't be upset, and don't be angry with yourselves for selling me to this place. It was God who sent me here ahead of you to preserve your lives. This famine that's ravaged the land for two years will last five more years, and there'll be neither plowing nor harvest. God has sent me ahead of you to keep you and your families alive and to preserve many survivors. So it was God who sent me here, not you. And he is the one who made me an advisor to Pharaoh, the manager of his entire palace and the governor of all of Egypt. That's God's perspective. 
And then as after their father Jacob passed away and the brothers were necessarily concerned that Joseph might change his mind and execute judgment and extract revenge, he reassured them with these words as the story concludes in chapter 50, verse 19. Joseph replied, don't be afraid of me. Am I God that I can punish you? You intended to harm me, but God intended it all for good. He brought me to this position so I could save the lives of many people. Yeah, it is true there are two kingdoms in conflict, and Joseph suffered the shrapnel of the kingdom of darkness in many ways in his life. But God the King worked his sovereign and eternal purpose through that myriad complex of circumstances over two decades, most of those circumstances which were negative. Such is the mystery of the kingdom doesn't mean we take everything just lying down. It's not whatever will be, will be. In Genesis 42, verse 21, Joseph resisted his brothers. He was distressed and pleaded for his life as he was headed into the cistern. He wasn't thinking, well, praise God, I'm going into the cistern to die. Or thank you, Yahweh, that I'm unjustly being sold as a slave or accused and now being thrown into prison and spending the rest of my life. He wasn't praising God for the negative. No, I bet the whole time he was thinking things like, dang, I thought you showed me those dreams, Lord. Like, what is the deal? I believed you had good things in store for my life. I couldn't be any further from the fulfillment of those promises. Two decades later, what is going on? Nevertheless, I choose to trust that you're working all things together for my good and that you are in control. And I think the lesson, friends, is that In many ways, our life in God's kingdom is going to be a mixture. It's going to be a mixture of good and bad, of victory and defeat, joy and sorrow, answered prayers and dashed hopes, living in the palace, being cast into the prison, being promoted and falsely charged. God the king can be trusted. He's in control, and he's moving the storyline of our lives to its grand conclusion at the end of the age when the kingdom is completed. Now, it's safe to say, isn't it, in many ways, that God's plan and ours often don't match up, (laughs) do they? (laughs) You know, we have an idea of maybe how things are going to work out or how we'd like to see them work based on the revelation and insight we have to our special calling. We maybe even think that God spoke to us or gave us a dream. And we project forward our good intentions, even the things that we think God has spoken. But then, like in Joseph's case, things unfold differently than we imagine. A door closes, a dream is dashed, a prayer goes unanswered, things don't go as we had planned or hoped, a business or a marriage fails, a loved one dies, we contract a debilitating disease, Children turn away from God. Circumstances go contrary or against God's revealed will. Joseph's life teaches us that God can be trusted even when things unfold differently than we imagine. That God is good even though the circumstances of our life scream otherwise. That God is there all along. He is powerfully present. He has not abandoned us even though it may look like it, that God is wise and powerful, and he administers his wisdom and his power in our lives in just the right doses at just the right time, even though it always feels late, and that lastly, God can redeem 
even the most difficult and painful of circumstances, knowing that what the enemy means for evil, God can turn for good. The postcard of Joseph's life is a powerful encouragement that our God can be trusted. Lord, we're thankful that you speak to us these incredible words of encouragement from the from the life of Joseph. I pray, God, that you would release even today the ability to trust you, no matter where we're at in our life. All the complicated, messy circumstances and situations, maybe miles away from the dream you've put in our heart, our calling on our life, we say, we trust you. Would you release faith today, gifts of faith to trust you in that way? And now, Lord, as we offer to you our heart and our hands, our lives, our pocketbooks in, in, in these offerings and in, in these worship songs, we say we love you and we trust you in your name. Amen.